All right, beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 42. And um, Isaiah 42 and starting in verse 18, that's where we're going to be looking tonight. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 43 to verse 7. And the reason that we're going to do that is, you know, I mean, you guys know this, right? But like the chapter divisions and everything in Scripture, like they were put in after Scripture was written. It's not like, you know, Isaiah got to chapter 43. It was like, okay, Isaiah 43, you know, and then wrote it down. That's not what he did. So there's a, you know, when we look at the end of the tail end of of chapter 42, it's going to be dealing with um, the guilt and the, the, you know, the, really the fault of Israel, and then God's deliverance, right? That's why, that's the whole reason for the but now at at chapter 43. It connects back to chapter 42. So anyway, let's read it, starting in verse 18. We'll read through chapter 43 and verse 7, then we'll pray and we'll dig into this text tonight. We read, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's pray together. Father, this is a really remarkable text. And I feel like I say that all the time. It's because your word is remarkable in every instance. And as we read this, Lord God, it's, it is such water to our souls and food to our hearts. And it is... Um, Father, it is just such a great blessing. I am so thankful for the power and the constancy and the perfection of your holy word. And I'm grateful to you, Lord God, that you preserved it for us. And that when we read these words, Lord God, we're not just reading, um, you know, we're not reading truths that belong in ancient times. We are reading ancient truths for eternity. And that is, that's tremendous. And the only reason that can be so is because 
you are the God who authored this book and you declare the end from the beginning. So as we study your word together tonight, I pray that Father will do it um, to the benefit of our souls. I pray that you'd come and you would be with us, that you would teach us and train us. And Father, that you would direct our hearts and our minds to understand your word. I pray that you'd give me grace, Lord God, by your spirit, that I would speak your words in a way that's pleasing in your sight. That as we consider this text, Father God, you would just inflame our hearts to a greater degree of faith and confidence and trust in you. Um, I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight. I pray, Father, this would be time well spent for the sake of our souls. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, beloved. So a few weeks ago, you know, we began this great section that we're in right now in in Isaiah. Actually, I guess it's a couple of months ago. We started in chapter 40, right? And in particular, we came, you know, a couple of weeks ago to the servant songs that are in Isaiah. And there's four of those, right? And so... What they are is this greater and kind of more expanded exposition by Isaiah regarding the the character of the Messiah, right? Of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his mission to redeem God's people. Because the servant of the Lord, as we saw, really is God's answer to our sin, right? It's God's answer to our failure. It's God's answer to the idolatry and the failure of the nations of Israel and of Judah to keep covenant with him but also to the spiritual darkness and depravity of the elect from all nations, right? Which includes us. And so, you know, the thing that sets him apart from all of us is that he actually keeps covenant with the Holy God. And he, in his faithfulness, accomplishes the redemption of his people. And he fulfills God's righteousness in a way that Israel, that the Gentile nations that we never could and, you know, never desired to, right? So... What we see here is that this, this saving work, the scope of it includes not only the elect remnant that's in Israel, right? Um, but the elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue, right? And, and we've got to keep that in mind, right? So what fallen Israel and spiritually dark Gentile nations needed was a Savior, right? And so that's what God provided, the chosen servant from Him. God in human flesh, the servant who embodies the saving purpose of the Lord, right? And so when we read that, And when we understand what God has done, the response of our souls, especially as redeemed people, ought to be what? Thank you. Rejoicing. Celebration. Right. And so that's what we see. Right. Because right after the first servant song, there's this doxology that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Right. You know, the great saving purpose of God, if it doesn't do anything else, it should at least lead the people of God to sing a new song, right? A song of salvation, a song of rejoicing in the purposes of Yahweh, right? Why? Because he's our great champion. Because, you know, he's the one who conquers sin and death. He's the one who brings his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light because he's not a false god like all the gods and the idols of man. But he's a zealous and a divine warrior. He is a personal saving, redeeming, rescuing God who shows himself mighty against all his foes, right? And so now, in this text that we're looking at tonight, Isaiah is explaining the reason for the predicament that the remnant is in, right? He's going to explain here tonight why the remnant is in Babylonian captivity and why it is that God's got to intervene to rescue them or they're not going to be rescued. And why it is, they ultimately need this servant, the chosen servant, to stand in their place and provide spiritual rescue for God's chosen people. A theme that Isaiah is going to expand on as we, as we continue you know, through the other three songs. But what Isaiah describes here tonight 
in this text that we're looking at is, number one, the failure of the nation, right? The failure of the nation to be what God redeemed them from Egypt to be. And then second, the consequence of their sinful actions. And then third, to present Yahweh as their only Savior. It's a very rich text, and it's got a lot of application as as we go through it. So let's just dig into it tonight, and I want us to begin, first of all, by looking at the failure of God's people. Look with me again at verses 18 through 21, right? Read them with me. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Now, what are we supposed to see in this text? Well, the first thing that I want us to see is the way that the Lord addresses Israel and Judah, right? The remnant from both as his servant. Okay, that's important. You remember I mentioned earlier that the word servant is used in these latter chapters of, of Isaiah to speak of either the chosen servant, right? The Lord Jesus Christ or of the Jewish nation or as, as a whole or of the remnant in particular or even, you know, of the pagan king Cyrus, right? So the, the word servant can be used in a lot of different ways. And so the way you understand or you determine the, the identity of the servant that is being described is the context. And the context here points to the nation of Israel as a whole, okay? And what he's saying is this. Look, the state of the Jewish nation in its entirety was that of being deaf and blind. And that's a very, very strong statement. But it's one that really is borne out almost from the very inception of the nation of Israel, isn't it? Like when you look into history, you see this clearly revealed, right? Think about it. God had chosen and formed the nation of Israel to be his chosen possession, right? His purchased possession. They were to be the instrument of his word, of his law, and of his precepts, of his revealed redemptive truth to be proclaimed in all of the world, right? When God redeemed Israel, they were to be a missionary nation in a world that was under the darkness of sin and spiritual ignorance, right? That was what they were in part, redeemed to do. In fact, think about it. God had chosen Abraham, right? Where did he choose him from? He chose him from Ur the Chaldees, right? He chose him from a place of great spiritual darkness to be the father of this great nation that would be the vehicle of God's special revelation through his word, right? That's the idea here when Isaiah says, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The whole point of Israel was that they would be a reliable witness to the character, the glory, and the word of the living God, right? And they were his servant, he says here. They were his messenger, right? The prophetic and priestly messenger to the world, the one that was sent by God to speak on his behalf. In fact, he uses another term here, dedicated one, right? That's a really strong term. It's the idea of the phrase is, look, you were made, they were made to be, to be in covenant with the Lord, to be in covenant with Yahweh, to be indivisibly united to him so that they might do his bidding and so they might serve his purpose. So when we look at these first few verses, here's Israel, they're to be God's servant, his messenger, his people to serve and honor him and make his revelation known. But there's a big problem. There's a big problem. 
And that problem is that the nation was by and large deaf and blind before the Lord. Here's the problem with that. A messenger who is deaf to the Lord, what? Has nothing to say, right? And the blind cannot lead the blind, right? I mean, this is an issue, really, of a lack of faith and responsiveness, an issue of a lack of spiritual sensitivity and understanding. That's what Isaiah is getting across here. It's not that they didn't have the word of God. They did. It's that they lacked spiritual perception and awareness to receive the word of God and learn from their experiences, right? That's why he says he sees many things, but does not observe them. His eyes, his ears are open, but he does not hear. Now, you know this in an English context or in a human context, don't you? Like, have you ever been in one of those situations where you're just staring off into like just 10,000 yard stare and there's stuff going on in front of you and you don't even notice? You ever had that happen? That doesn't come in handy like when you're watching your kids, right? Or watching your dog to keep it from running away, but that happens, right? Or, you know, you've been in the midst of a conversation sometime and you're hearing somebody prattle on. Maybe you're sitting under a sermon and you just don't hear anything. I mean, you actively physically hear the words, but they make no impact upon you. Right. Right. That's the issue here. The nation had seen God. Think about this now. Their very inception was miraculous. Was it not? They'd seen they had seen God act in miraculous ways all the way back to their redemption from slavery in Egypt and their formation as the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai. But although God had demonstrated His sovereign power over all the idols of man, still, what did the nation do? Well, they pursued and prostituted herself with gods from the Canaanite nations, right? Seeing they didn't observe, they didn't understand, right? And God had repeatedly then sent prophets to confront and correct nations. It's not like the, the nation of Israel was profitless. From the very beginning, they had a prophet. Moses, right? And what did Moses say? Well, another prophet will arise, right? He, we know he was speaking down the road of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter remains is that in between Moses and the final prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a whole bunch of prophets, were there not? Yeah. And it's not just that they didn't listen. You know, it's not just that they, they didn't, you know, perceive they actually killed those prophets right god sends these prophets to confront and correct them to call them to repentance to restore them to the lord their words fell on deafened ears and hardened hearts their ears you know were open but they didn't hear and god brought discipline upon them in other words look now now the nation had fallen into captivity now the nation had fallen into captivity because of its own sinful disregard of the word of the Lord. That's why. Their disregard of their covenant relationship to him that was established in the Exodus. They failed to uphold the responsibility as God's people. And now, here they were in captivity in Babylon and they were threatened with extinction. And Isaiah is pressing the point home. Your captivity has nothing to do with military powers that are greater than you. It's not the result of powers that be in this world. It's not a consequence of political maneuvering, right? You're not in captivity because it just happened or because God was powerless to keep you from captivity. God had proven his power and authority over all flesh in the Exodus and then the subduing of the promised land. Now, that wasn't the issue. The captivity was a consequence 
of their own disregard of Yahweh. It was divine discipline, right? Now, I want us to think about this from a couple of perspectives because I think, first, I think this, this text gives some excellent insight into our own day. First of all, I want you to think about this. The blindness and the deafness of the Jewish nation that, they let, that led to their captivity is multiplied in our society today, isn't it? Isn't it? Let me explain what I mean. You know, you've heard some iteration, I'm sure, of the tired old refrain, well, God doesn't exist because if there was a God, there would not be suffering and death and tragedy in this world. If God was a God of love and if God was a good God, then there wouldn't be violence and there wouldn't be natural disasters and there wouldn't be people killing one another and there wouldn't be any of this. So there can't be a God, right? We've all heard something like that, right? The problem with that position is what? Well, the problem with that position is willful blindness and deafness to biblical revelation, right? Right? God didn't create the world with sin. It's not like God created the world with sin and death and decay and then at the end of the sixth day said, well, that's very good. He didn't do that. God did not introduce sin and death and decay into this world. We did. We did it. Adam brought the effects of sin into this world and look, we followed suit, right? The problem's us. The problem is that fallen humanity has rejected God's commandments and dishonored his authority and rebelled against his goodness and we are suffering the consequences as a result, right? Now, people don't want to hear that. You know, nobody wants to hear, look, the problem in this world is, well, you. Nobody wants to hear that, right? But it's the truth. Our sin has brought us the, upon us the consequences that we see in our society. But because God is a merciful and a gracious God, He's provided the way of salvation and redemption and rescue through the giving of His Son, right? He'll judge the world, right? He will. He will judge the world in righteousness. And He will recreate a new heavens and a new earth in which peace and righteousness dwells, right? And those who have received redemption through Jesus Christ will be right there with Him. But as for the state of this world, God is not to blame. We are. And people need to understand that. I think one of the great weaknesses in our evangelism is that we're not more open to proclaim the reality of sin. I want you to think about what we've done in the church for so long. And I'm not saying our church, I'm just saying the church in general, the Americanized version of church. Right? All we focus on is the blessings of God and know Jesus can make your life complete and Jesus can give you the desires of your heart and Jesus can give you this and Jesus can give you that. And we completely mask the reason why Christ came in the first place. Jesus didn't come to give you, you know, the abundant life as we define it according to, you know, our fallen sinful desires. He came to give abundant life to those in death. We need a Savior because we're sinners and we've wrecked everything, including ourselves. And if you don't have that understanding, then the gospel makes no sense, right? Right? You wonder why people in the, in the world aren't keen on hearing the gospel. Well, there used to be a little more, at least receptivity, it seemed like, at least for me, you know, at 55. I can look back to when I was 35 and think, you know, when I was, when I was you know, talking to people about the gospel then, people seemed a lot more receptive than, than now. They were more receptive. At least they didn't like just shut you down immediately and begin calling you names or anything. It doesn't happen all the time in, in, you know, in the South, but <laughs> go up north for a while. 
The reason is, is because we lost a sense of sin. That leads me to the second thing. I, I think about this principle in light of the weakness of the professing church in our nation today, right? I mean, when we look at it, we have to admit, the church of Christ, the visible church of Christ, does not seem to be having the same effect as it once did in our nation. Isn't that true? In a lot of ways, it does seem as if the church is in captivity, that it's ineffective, that it's easily disregarded. Why is that? Could it be that by and large, the professing church is no different than the world that's around it? And no different, really, than in purpose, and, and no different in desire, and no different in our allegiances? In fact, I think in many way, ways there's a distinct parallel between the compromise concerning the Word of God and its authority and the weakness of the professing church. We can too easily go along, you know. We too easily go along with prevailing sinful norms so that we don't seem so contrary or, quote, radical, right? We, we can't speak with authority on issues of morality and of righteousness because we've been silent for too long while purported Christian pastors and secular experts have eroded our confidence in the Word of God and therefore the righteousness that it declares. The righteous commandments that it declares. How much of the professing church is truly deaf and blind to divine truth? Now, obviously, I don't have an exact percentage. But it's a question worth asking. Because I think the answer explains a lot. Again, a messenger that's deaf to the Lord has nothing to say. You want to know why the church increasingly has nothing to say to our society? It's because they've abandoned the Word of God. What can you say? What do you got to say? Some spin version, some newer thing of Tony Robbins with a little Jesus thrown in? Like really, what do you got to say? Some kind of soundbite? Some cool philosophy that you learned in academia? Oh, here's the psychology of man that came from fallen man's ideas. Oh, that's trustworthy. The message of Steph to the Lord has nothing to say. The blind cannot lead the blind. And that's part of the problem in our society today, a professing church that is largely blind and deaf to God. And I would say to you this, it has been that progression that has taken place. And I think in our society, there's a lot of places to pinpoint it. I mean, we can go back to modernism. and we can, But I think it really took off on steroids with the seeker-sensitive Bill Hybels, you know, Ricky Warren, and all those other guys. Bob Shuler. Talk about a guy that looks serpentine. That's Bob Shuler. You ever looked at that guy? I mean, he's dead now, but you know. It began there, and it, has, it is stampeding in our culture. It morphs off into a variety of different things, right? Woke and all that other stuff. But, but the issue is, faithful churches refuse to speak out against that corruption when it first began. For whatever reason. Because we wanted to be, play nice. You know, we wanted to be nice in the sandbox. You know, 
Because we didn't want to be seen as contrarian or divisive. Imagine if the Reformers had felt that way. Oh, we know the Catholic Church has completely destroyed the gospel. But you know what? We just want to stay pals. We'd have no gospel to preach today. This is serious. Both Israel and Judah had failed to be faithful to God. The result was captivity. I think we're seeing much of that today. But the issue with these guys is they had a hard time putting two and two together, right? Because really what we have in this text is the answer to the question that was posed back in Isaiah 40, verse 27. If you want to look there, you can, but I'll quote it to you. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, the idea there is, how did we get in this predicament? How did we get here? Right? And in this next section that we're going to start looking at, he explains it as divine discipline. Look at verses 22 and 23 again, and we read, but this is a people plundered and looted. How do we get here? I mean, we're supposed to be like the messengers and the servants and all that, but we're people now plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoiled with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Hey, wake up and listen to what I'm saying to you is what he's saying. And the voice here changes from Yahweh to Isaiah. And here, Isaiah uses very picturesque language to describe the state of the Jewish remnant that's in captivity. They're plundered, they're looted, they're trapped in holes, and they're hidden in prison, right? That's the state of the Jewish people. Yahweh's one-time servant, messenger, and dedicated one are now plundered and looted. And indeed, they were, right? They'd been plundered completely by Babylon, right? Jerusalem had been torn to the ground by the time this Prophecy is being read by the exiles, right, that are in Babylon. Now, there's no evidence that they were trapped in holes and put in prison. Perhaps some of them were, but that's not the point. The point is this. The picture is one of doom and gloom, right? That's what he's trying to get across. That there's no expectation. There could be no expectation of rescue or restoration by any human hand. There was no human hand that could fix this. Their captivity seemed to be inescapable and everlasting, and it was their own fault. Well, why do I say that? It's because of what Isaiah says in verses 24 and 25. Look at it. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? God did it. Against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Again, I want you to see this. The focus is on, right, the Lord's discipline. He's the one that gave him up to the looters and the plunderers. He's the one who orchestrated the Babylonian captivity, and Isaiah explains why. And notice what he does here, because this is very important. First, he includes himself and all the captives that would read this prophecy in the future saying, We have sinned. We have sinned. And that's important to see. Isaiah doesn't let himself off the hook. Remember? You know, before he was converted, he was part of the problem, right? I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a hypocrite and I'm living amongst a bunch of other hypocrites. We're all a bunch of hypocrites, God. Right? But neither does he let the captives off the hook. As if they're just the innocent victims of the transgressions of their fathers. Right? Well, it's not my fault. My mom and my dad, right? We're familiar with that. They too are part of the problem. 
Because what they had done is they had followed in the footsteps of their fathers before them who had failed Yahweh, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. And the idea that's being communicated here is this. It's not just that they, they failed, they, they, they tried, but they just, they just couldn't do it. That's, that's, not, that's not the idea here. The idea here is of willful and deliberate disobedience, of an unsubmitted will to God, of a deliberate refusal to submit to the Word of God. In other words... Isaiah is saying, this is our own fault. We deserve this. This shouldn't come as a great shock. God has given us repeated opportunities to repent and to return to Him. Divine discipline is never His first choice, but here we are. I love what Dr. Mark says this a lot. He says, God in His grace is remarkably patient. Something like this. I'm paraphrasing him. That God in His grace is remarkably patient. And He'll give us a time to repent. But if we refuse to do so... He must bring discipline, and we will not like it. And it's true. And that's exactly what he did with Israel. And then later on with Judah. Israel, Isaiah is saying, in essence, look, we never, just, we never seemed to get it. We, we, we never understood when, you know, our enemies prevailed against us, and when God had to come and deliver us, and when our hillsides were turned into flame, and when we saw Israel get crushed by Assyria, like we just, we just never saw, we never understood. And now here we are. But praise God, you're not left without hope. See, that's the thing. Like if Isaiah just left it off at Isaiah 42, we'd be like. Well, that stinks, right? I mean, if you're the Babylonian captives, what do you think to that? Here we are. We did it ourselves. This is what we deserve. You know what you've got? If God doesn't intervene, you've got hell here. This is what hell. This is a picture of hell. This is, this is what you deserve apart from the grace of God. But the story doesn't end in perpetual captivity, right? Look what he says. We read starting in verse 1. Let's read the whole thing. Verse 1 through 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Man, I love that. What a word of hope, right? But now, those are, whenever you see that one, but now or but, those are like the greatest words in Scripture because they're always followed by something awesome. You ever notice that, right? Israel's been revealed as blind. They've been revealed as inattentive. They've been revealed as falling short of the Lord's plan, defeated, sinfully disobedient, spiritually uncomprehending, and insensitive. But now, God will move. Now, 
Yahweh will not leave them in their shameful condition brought on by their own sin. Instead, He will redeem and rescue the captives, and He must do it because there's no way that a sinner can extricate himself from his predicament. But why will He do it? That's the question. Why will He do it? Why will He act to rescue a people that have been so disobedient and so obstinate and so hard-hearted? Well, it's because God is always faithful. And above all, He is faithful to Himself and to His purposes to display His glory. Now, some people get upset when I say that. Ultimately, when I say that, you know, that, that God, you know, above all is faithful to Himself and His purposes to display His glory. But you understand, if God was not faithful to Himself, there would be no hope for you and me. Otherwise, his promises would be as good as Joe Biden's. He is committed to his glory. And those are rich words. This, this text, verses 1 through 7, these are rich words. They're full of gracious truth. Let me just show you a few things. First, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the way that the Lord emphasizes his sovereign ownership of his people. Right? I love this. You know, he, he talks about how he created them and he formed them. And then he says, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. That description, notice, points to... God is the sovereign creator, right? And then to Yahweh, the covenant Lord, as he formed the nation. In other words, here's what he's doing. Using the language of Genesis 1 and 2, Isaiah reminds the people that just as God created and shaped the physical universe, so he brought them into existence as his own people. Right? He redeemed them from slavery to Egypt. He placed his name upon them. That's the meaning of the, the admonition in the Ten Commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Not don't, don't say swears. I mean, don't, because that's stupid. And it's unprofitable. It defames the Lord. But the issue is you don't take the name of the Lord upon you. And then live in a way that is counter. He'd made them his own. And despite their sin and their failure, he had not finally and fully cast them off. And for that reason, God's going to return His people to their land. And notice, I want you to see, there's no promise here of ease or a trouble-free future, is there? There's no promise here of, oh, it's just going to be butterflies and rainbows. and There's none of that, right? There's none of that tripe that gets sold regularly these days. The promise is not of a trouble-free future. The promise is of the Lord's sustaining presence right through to the journey's end, come what may, Right? There's going to be rivers, and there's going to be waters, and there's going to be fire. But God will keep His people through it all. And then second, I want you to notice that to strengthen their assurance, the Lord underscores His sovereign identity before them, right? I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He uses four words, four names to describe Himself. First, he calls himself Lord, right? Again, that's the, that's the covenant name Yahweh, the one who keeps covenant with his people. He says, I am your God, which had to be a great encouragement that because, you know, although they were a people who had been punished for their sins, there's still hope for them and that God remains their God. He doesn't just, you know, wash his hands of them. He's the Holy One of Israel, the one who remains unbending in his purity and in his holiness and in his righteous purpose. And he's your Savior. He's the one who alone can rescue them by his saving power, right? 
He's done it once, he'll do it again. In fact, he's already shown his great love for his people in the Exodus. That's the reference here to the exchange of Egypt and Cush and Seba for his people. But the idea that's that's presented here in the Hebrew is that there is nothing, there's nothing of which you can conceive that God would not give for them in order to redeem them to himself. And did not God prove that conclusively once and for all in the giving of His Son? But why is that? Well, He says, it's because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I always laugh when people will say, well, the God of the Old Testament is not a God of love. Really? Tell the Babylonian remnant that. He's a God of love. In fact, these are the words of sovereign grace, aren't they? Of electing love. Despite their sin, despite their deliberate transgression, God's love rests on his remnant. They're precious to him. They're honored in his eyes. They're the object of his enduring and his everlasting love. Here's the point. God will at last, and there's nothing that can keep this from happening. God will at last have his people as his own, and he'll do whatever is necessary to make it a reality. And that's at the very heart, isn't it, of the covenant, as Paul described it in 2 Corinthians when he said these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 8, verse 16. What agreement? has the temple of God with idols none for we're the temple of the living God as God said I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the Lord and touch no unclean thing then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord almighty Moreover, I love this, Yahweh promises to bring all his sons and daughters from the four corners of the earth to himself. Everybody who's called by his name. Everybody whom he created and formed for the display of his glory. No one's going to be missing. So the Babylonian remnant could be okay, like, you know, know, they were taken off into captivity, but, you know, Jobab, he was part of the remnant, he was trusting in the Lord, and they sent him off somewhere. Don't worry, God will find him. And he'll do it all for the sake of his exaltation and his honor as the one true God. And so the message is, look, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Your God acts for your good and for his glory and his purposes cannot fail to be fulfilled. Your sin, though it's great. Look, it's no match for God's gracious purposes. It's no match for God who promises and delivers. Now, you can understand, right, that this would be an awesome encouragement to the Jewish nation in exile, right? All hope is not lost. I can imagine that, I mean, of course, this is sanctified imagination. There's no way to actually know this. But I can imagine that, like, in the Babylonian exile, like, whoever the guy was that had, like, the copy of Isaiah's prophecy, I bet this is one of those passages that he was reading quite a bit to the folks, you know? All hope isn't lost. And and you know what? Here's the thing. It ought to be the same for us in our exile in this fallen world, right? Because these are words that we ourselves can hear and that we can treasure because what God says of elect Israel is true of us, right? Just as the old covenant opens up into the new. We as the people of God, though we have sinned horribly against God, right? And though we yet continue to sin in these bodies of flesh, right? 
We have been redeemed by God's chosen servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through His perfect life and His atoning death, right? Through God, God wrought faith by the Holy Spirit. Our blindness and our deafness has been taken away and we're now the people of God. Yet, we remain exiles and, 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 and aliens in a hostile world. But don't worry. God is faithful. And He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us and He will bring us home, right? Writer of Hebrews says, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say what? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have no reason to fear. No reason to cower or be ashamed in this world. We've got Yahweh, who's proven his faithfulness in the past, who's redeemed us by the blood of his own dear son, who sees us as precious in his eyes, as honored, a God who loves us despite our sins and who is working all things together for our good and for His glory. And He promises to bring us home. That ought to have a powerful and a strengthening effect on us, shouldn't it? It ought to give us confidence and steadfastness in our souls and everything. And it ought to make us bold and courageous and living for His glory. And it ought to make us, you know, energetic and making His name known and standing on His truth and shining the light of Christ on blinded eyes so that they might be opened. Spiritually blinded eyes won't see except the light of Christ shines on them. And to proclaim the word of God to deafened ears so that they might be unstopped. Remember what Jeremiah said? You know, or quoting the Lord, is not my word like a hammer? Some people seem just unchangeably deaf. But it's remarkable the power that the word of God has to chisel away even the most recalcitrant deafness. Let's pray. And then we're going to stand and we'll sing and then we'll, we'll split up and, and into our prayers. Father, we are thankful, Lord God, for this word. You know, the promises that are, that are contained here and the truth that is just powerfully proclaimed in this text God, these are words that my own soul needs to hear quite often. And so I'm thankful, Lord, that you have provided such a clear and definitive description of our dilemma and our guilt regarding it and the power of your grace to overcome even the most deeply ingrained sin. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in you even more. And that, Father, you would make us confident and steadfast, bold and courageous to live for the praise of your glory and for just the, just for the testimony and the exaltation of Christ. Thank you for meeting with us in your word tonight. Father, I pray that these words would have a lasting and, Father, a a fruit-bearing effect in all of our souls. Thank you for this time, and, and thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. You are truly faithful to your people, and we thank you and we praise you for it. To you, most merciful and wise God, we give you all praise and glory now and forever. In Christ's name, amen.